are listening to KCBP Community Radio on 95.5 FM and streaming on kcbpradio.org. This is Women of the Valley, where we examine the issues, stories, organizations, and people important to women in our community. We're your hosts, Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch. Today we're talking to Lindsay Bird, and Lindsay, tell us a little bit about your profession, what what you're trained in, and what your title is now. Sure, absolutely. Um, I actually just left a 17-year teaching career. I was a, a high school social science educator, and spent the last decade um, as the social science teacher and coordinator of a specialized program called the Language Institute. So um, that program was designed to serve the needs of students who are brand new to the country. Um, We had immigrant, refugee, and asylum-seeking students from over 30 countries. It was absolutely a pleasure uh, to serve them and their families. It really gave me a big eye-opener to uh, the barriers that these students and many other students face inside the school system in terms of, um, you know, policy that was never, never in, written with the intention of um, causing them extra work or potentially harm, but um, certainly unintendedly did. I would say in addition to teacher, it would be fair to say, it became an advocate for this demographic of students in the school system, even going as far as to Uh, lobbying for some bills that were passed in Sacramento and even traveling to Washington DC to make sure the needs of these students were in the ear of the former Secretary of Education, John King. At the end of last year, uh, there were some changes um, made to the program here at the local level that I just wasn't comfortable with in terms of, you know, going backward in terms of uh, the opportunity we were offering our students to graduate literate and have access to um, all avenues of higher education. So I decided to leave in order to stay faithful to my dedication to open barriers and became a consultant. So now my expertise, of course, is exactly that, you know, educational opportunities for newcomers. But I definitely hope to um, do professional development in terms of mindset and implicit bias within the school system in general. And then also in terms of welcoming and and accommodating and uh, being culturally competent for the needs of newcomers to the communities, I'm also offering the consulting services to nonprofits and businesses as well. Wow. (laughs) So... That is a lot of wonderful, <laughs> of wonderful information, and I want to back up just a little, just so we can kind of unfold everything that you just said. So you worked at Davis High School, and was that something that you helped to create? Um, so I was, I believe, fortunate enough um, at the beginning of my teaching career to be assigned the English learner section. So this is back in 2004. And my experience as a teacher in those English learner sections was there was so much diversity uh, within that title English learner. Mm-hmm. So let's say if I had a world history class, I could have a student who was born in Modesto who was identified an English learner because their parents um, spoke that language at home when they enrolled in kindergarten. And, you know, here I have one student in mind. He um, happened to be a sophomore and uh, had no idea he was still considered an English learner. And he was um, in the same class as a student who had just arrived the day before and was at the absolute beginning phases of learning the language. And so as a teacher, I quickly realized that it would be impossible for me to meet the, the unique needs of those students in one classroom. So when I was invited to be part of a committee to explore ways we could better serve the diversity within the language, the English learner population, I was thrilled to have that opportunity. And um, based on the data that we um, analyzed, about 80% of the English learners in, in our school system uh, fit into the long-term English learner category. So they've been in the schools five years or more, usually are very verbally fluent and for a variety of reasons have yet to reclassify. 
And then the Language Institute was something we developed specifically for the newcomers, knowing that if we put them in one class together, we would be um, sacrificing the rigor and grade level access that the long-term English learners uh, deserved. And then we would also not be able to give full attention to, of course, the really targeted and specific um, needs that an English learner has when they come and they don't even know the Roman alphabet. So um, I was lucky enough to be on the committee that designed the program and then a teacher from day one. We started in uh, 2009 and um, after one year, uh, the gentleman who had really spearheaded the effort to start the program retired. And so from 2010 until last year, I was in addition to being a teacher, also the coordinator of the program. I'm really fortunate to have been along the scope of the development of the program because, you know, we did our due diligence when we were developing it in terms of um, analyzing data. We even traveled and visited um, schools that had uh, similar demographics and similar programs. And we really felt like, you know, we were um, doing the best that we knew how to do at the time, but, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And when we um, opened our rosters in August of 2009, there were a lot of names we surely didn't anticipate. And um, we had just assumed that in the Valley, we would have predominantly Spanish-speaking students. What happened was at that very uh, moment, our region, was uh, becoming an Assyrian Iraqi refugee hub. And so what we hadn't anticipated in our research was meeting the needs of students not familiar with the Roman alphabet, but not even on an academic um, lens, but we didn't consider students that had experienced such trauma or students who had not been to school ever or maybe for a significant um, portion of their formative years. So it was both the language, the trauma, and the truncated education that made us realize that, yes, all the research we'd done in the committee phase was great, but it didn't give us all the tools we needed to properly serve the students who were actually sitting in the seats in our classroom. Can you describe some of the students' experiences? It sounds like it would really give people a picture into the community of high school students that's all around us that we may just not know about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I grew up here um, and, you know, I had many friends who, you know, their families um, spoke other languages at home. And I remember hearing lots of stories about, you know, the immigration experience being a choice and usually one made for opportunity. And so I think that's um, something that most people associate with immigration. It's kind of the, that, um, that American dream, that story. And uh, what we found um, in our classroom was that the one common bond that most of our students had really regardless of what country or culture they came from was that they were definitely um, fleeing something. They were definitely being pushed out of their country. Even um, Mexico um, being you know, the, the top country that provides immigrants to the Central Valley. Um, many of our students who were from Mexico were fleeing the exact same um, violence and threats as our students in war, to war zones. So um, that really was an adjustment for us to be sensitive of and um, to try to, like I said, meet the not only academic and linguistic needs, but the, the social emotional needs that come with that. For example, you know, I can tell you we have uh, many students um, from Mexico who are in our community who are here for safety um, that aren't living with their uh, family unit. They're usually staying with a cousin or a brother or an uncle, sometimes um, not even knowing that family member until they arrive here which you can imagine causes a lot of stress at home when you don't feel like you, know, you have um, a, a parent not only um, to lean on in terms of you know, what you're experiencing or maybe even for emotional or, or, or homework help. Um, so that's a big challenge for many of our Spanish-speaking students from Mexico. I, I had mentioned that in 2009, um, our refugee students were primarily coming from Iraq um, and they were Assyrian uh, by culture. And so really quickly, you know, we had to get ourselves culturally competent 
to understand, you know, why these students didn't identify as Iraqi. They identified as Assyrian, and we were so incredibly thankful to have such a robust Assyrian community in the Central Valley to give us all that cultural competency to help the students and the families, you know, be proud of who they were and, you know, adjust to their new community. And then right when we felt like we really had the needs of the Assyrian Iraqi students somewhat figured out, um, they, they, they stopped coming and we started to receive Syrian refugees and uh, Yemeni students and um, our biggest group of refugee students uh, as of the recent years have been from Afghanistan. So again, even within Afghanistan itself, um, it's a very tribal uh, country. So we had students that, you know, all came from the same country, but we would notice maybe off the bat weren't necessarily mingling or supporting each other like we would assume because of the tribal differences in their native land. And that was something that we needed to address in a, in a cult culturally sensitive manner. So it was just really fascinating to have the world map up on my classroom wall. And I would put a little pin in each home city with a, a, a string that went to a that identified the name of the student that was from that location. And when you'd look up at my wall on, in my classroom and you think about, you know, what you saw on television or you read in the newspaper, you realized that here we are in, in Modesto and we are a mirror of international conflict and politics. And that was represented in the students that we were serving. We were just a little microcosm of what's going on around the globe. What did you do to problem solve some of those situations? And when you say become culturally competent, what does that actually mean? In order to gain cultural competency, I think that the, the, the first thing that anyone should uh, do is reach out, if you can, to the actual person or family or student that you're trying to learn about and connect. Because um, in terms of cultural competency, of course there are things that each culture in general um, represent. Sometimes, you know, you could say possibly even stereotypes, but having a conversation um, with the, the student or family really helps you get to know where they fit in to the, the greater fabric of the culture that, that they bring to our country. I, like I mentioned before, in addition to speaking with the families, um, obviously that wasn't possible for me when the students first arrived, considering I'm not bilingual and I certainly don't speak that, I think 19 different native languages that were represented throughout our classroom. So we were very fortunate to have phenomenal bilingual professionals who helped not only translate, but were real ambassadors for the countries and the cultures that they represented. So they definitely um, accelerated our learning curve in terms of cultural competency. For example, our original Arabic speaking paraprofessional, she herself had arrived as a refugee from Iraq. She is not a Syrian, and so um, she was able to explain to me, you know, the difference in their country in terms of the different, you know, it, people who identify as, as Arab or Syrian and the dynamics within their culture and how that might play out in our classroom. And without, you know, her sitting down and, um, you know, sharing baklava and drinking tea, uh, you know, at her house, just that human connection was something I was so thankful for. And then in addition, of course, we do have resources in the community through our refugee resettlement agencies. And then, for example, with our Spanish-speaking community, El Cancelio is such a great reference in there. And they've always been so supportive of any questions that we've had. Um, uh, that being said, in terms of the refugee population, I definitely remember going, driving to an office thinking I was going to get answers and sitting down at a table and then thinking that I was there to provide them with answers <laughs> and us realizing that we were on this journey of cultural competency together. So um, I think that was the most dynamic aspect of my job was that I never had a bag of tricks to rely on. Um, each, each family, each individual student's story was different and obviously the context that it, it was wrapped around was usually, you know, culture and conflict but really making sure if you're gonna meet the needs of that specific individual, that you have some frame of reference from where they're coming from, but also listen to what they bring to the table that might be different and unique. Languages that you would see from Afghanistan 
Can you fill us in a little bit there? Because I'm not sure that everybody knows. I know I don't know the different languages that are spoken in Afghanistan. Um, their primary language is Dari, which is a dialect of, of Farsi. So we found that for most of the Dari-speaking Afghan students, even though it wasn't a direct translation, our students that spoke Farsi from Iran were able to communicate with them. There is also a significant portion of the population in Afghanistan who speak Pashto. And so while it's not, you know, the official language, it is one of the, the largest tribes. So occasionally, especially with students who um, came with solid education, they would be uh, literate and verbal in both Dari and Pashto. Most of our students, not all, but most of our students from Afghanistan, their families came on what's called the Special Immigrant Visa Program. So rather than the traditional refugee that's just resettled uh, for safety, um, the way that these families earned their resettlement is their, someone in their family, it was usually their father, not always, um, benefited our military in some way in Afghanistan. So translators, uh, doctors, the uh, bilingual paraprofessional that we hired was a uh, law professor in Kabul, and um, he was hired by the United Nations to negotiate tribal unrest, and that's how he earned his family's uh, resettlement here. It's been wonderful to have him in the classroom to, again, explain, kind of be an ambassador for Afghan culture and explain the dynamics between the tribes and the languages. I do believe that in addition to Dari and Pashtu, there are other tribal languages um, that students do know, but usually it's one of those two that they learned in school in terms of literacy. I find it hard to imagine how to teach English or facilitate the students learning English if you don't speak all of their languages. What does that actually look like in the classroom? Yes, it's, it's not easy, um, but I can tell you this. Um, one of the benefits of teaching this demographic of high school students is just like the joy and optimism that they bring. They just are so excited to have the opportunity to learn and um, there's such enthusiasm. It's very different than I think the, the mental picture a lot of people get when they think of, you know, uh, teenagers in a classroom, you know, maybe dozing off or checking their cell phones. So their, their commitment to their education and their enthusiasm was one of the, the biggest ingredients to the, their own success. Um, definitely, um, we were very lucky that eventually um, we became a digital school because being able to project images and um, use visuals in order to create connections is helpful. Um, it's very helpful to get students up and out of their seats and um, interacting both physically and verbally with either each other or with the class um, to create that total physical response that usually helps accelerate uh, language acquisition. Um, you can ask all of our colleagues because uh, we were located at Davis High School um, and we were you know, just on campus integrated with everyone else and our students traveled from class to class just like you know, their, their native born peers. And um, definitely uh, teachers on their, on their prep period or maybe students delivering call slips walking the halls always knew when they were walking by a language institute classroom because it was loud and vibrant and active. And um, even though it might sound like mass chaos, I guarantee that if, you know, that person were to peek their head in, they would see engagement and learning happening. Obviously, it's really important to get students to, to use their English as often um, and as quickly as possible. So our classrooms were definitely not a place where you would walk in and you could hear a pin drop, <laughs> that's for sure. And then of course, getting students to help each other is really key. Um, I just, one of the greatest uh, things I could witness is, you know, having a student who when they arrived, you know, was so frustrated because they couldn't understand anything and they, you know, didn't even know the alphabet. And then fast forward six months later, and that's the student I tap on the shoulder when a new kid from their country arrives to be the helper. So that cycle 
of, of helping one another was definitely part of the culture that we created in the classroom and in the program overall, where what you get when you first arrived is something that you give back to others as, as they arrive. And that took time to build. That, you know, you can't just tell students to do that. That was definitely something that came about over years um, of creating that culture. But I would, I mean, I couldn't go without giving credit to the students helping one another with their success. Was there ever a, a time when there was somebody who came who nobody else did speak their language? Yeah, actually, um, one of our biggest success stories, a young man um, from Cambodia who arrived, and at that time we did not have any students from Cambodia, um, and so Communicating with him was obviously extremely difficult, but again, super enthusiastic. I got the impression from him just the way he engaged and the way he threw himself into learning English, and I was so proud of the way he, he wasn't afraid to make mistakes. So I just assumed that he was probably an A-plus student in Cambodia, and he brought that same work ethic into our, our classrooms. So I was really shocked when, fast forward three years later, he's a senior, we nominated him for a National Literacy Award, and he won. And we had to create a video of his life story. And when during the production of that video, he was talking about how, you know, his parents were um, not well educated, they'd had to flee during the war. And um, he didn't really see much of a point in getting an education when he was in Cambodia because he knew that, you know, they were kind of in this social caste where there was no opportunity. We didn't take school serious there at all, didn't even get good grades, even, I think, admitted to, to ditching out on a class or two. So when I heard that and then I realized what a completely different student presented himself when he first arrived, um, it really uh, taught me a lesson in terms of, you know, you, you don't know what the student's story is until you give them the language and the confidence to tell their story. And he did. We have a, a video of him telling his story on YouTube to this day because he won that award. And it's something that I've used in my classroom as I taught aspiring uh, credential students at CSU Stanislaus, just as a reminder of, you know, what you see isn't always, or what you experience isn't always the story that you assume preceded it. For the class you taught, can you remind me again of, of the name? The class that I taught was called ELD Geography, English Language Development Geography. Um, basically, what we did is we took all content um, areas and made them intensive language acquisition classes. So whether it's, you know, math or, or English or support elective social science, they were all language accelerators. How do you do that? Um, it's hard, and it takes a lot of collaboration amongst peers. Um, my colleagues and I were really excited a few years ago. Um, our district had invested in sending teachers to a conference in Las Vegas where they were teaching us this. They called it uh, professional learning communities, and they were encouraging teachers to, you know, analyze data to, to you know, quantify success and then have conversations about what practices led to that so you could identify data-driven best practices and then kind of backwards map and, and learn from one another. And we were sitting there in Las Vegas and we looked at each other and thought, wow, that's so cool. We've been doing this all along and <laughs> we just didn't know it was called professional learning communities. Um, so that's exactly what we did. But we also realized that we really needed to collaborate and communicate because there was so much work that needed to be done for each student that we didn't want to waste time on redundancy. So, for example, um, in my class in social science, that introduction uh, to social science, I would really emphasize um, penmanship, you know, capitalization, punctuation, and writing, whereas in their English class, it was more just about, you know, expressive writing and maybe not as much, um, you know, grammar. Um, and so we just made, it, made sure that each of us was hitting on a part of, of literacy. Um, that was unique to our content area. So we were doing both, both teaching, you know, for example, in geography, you know, by the end of the year, I hope to give them the vocabulary and, you know, the, the content frame of reference here in the United States that they can carry into their world history class. So I need to be mindful of both of the language that I'm giving them and the content. 
This is Leah Hassett interviewing Lindsay Bird on KCBP 95.5 FM. Our show is Women of the Valley. Well, if a student who was an English language learner and they didn't know very much English at all went to a high school that didn't have that kind of support that your program was able to offer. Well, what has typically happened in the past is um, the, the bare minimum uh, legal requirement for a school district would be to provide them um, an English language development class. Um, and sometimes they will call it ELD. Um, sometimes it will be grade level English and then an additional support period for extra help. Um, but when it comes to um, that, that scenario, usually it's similar to my experience from when I first started teaching, where you have, again, such diversity of needs in that English learner group. Um, so really, uh, English learners are, are lucky when they enter a school system where there are enough English learners for them to levelize them to meet their needs, but that's not always the case. Um, and then when it comes to the classes that they need in order to graduate, usually that's determined by your grade level. There's definitely a scheme to things in terms of, you know, what does a, a ninth grader typically take? What does a tenth grader typically take? Uh, usually those students are, are mainstreamed for those classes um, and it becomes kind of a, a swing or, sink or swim uh, scenario. Um, what we found when we kind of analyzed students who experienced that is um, very often they will become verbal in English quickly because they have to, but what lags behind is the actual literacy skills they need in terms of reading and writing to, uh, you know, obviously earn a diploma, but also have, you know, that foundation to pursue all options after college. That was something we really were firmly committed to um, for our students. We wanted that diploma to mean literacy and the same opportunity as their native-born peers in terms of uh, post-secondary choices. I think I remember that being something that was talked about in some of the newspaper articles that I read about the program, is that when there was some students that moved to Modesto just to attend your program, am I right? Actually, their family just moved and it was a, a, a single mom and she just found a, a cheaper place to live here. So um, we were thrilled because we had a connection with the counselor at um, Turlock High School and she'd emailed us and she was like, oh, I'm so sad to be losing this family. They're so amazing, but I'm so thankful that, you know, they'll be in good hands um, with you guys. And so we were anticipating their enrollment. We knew the family was, you know, moving over the winter break. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, it was in the newspaper because the two young ladies were denied enrollment based on their age. And uh, that was the number one hurdle uh -huh. that we uncovered uh -huh. over the source of over the, you know, the scope of our, our decade long, um, you know, advocacy battle was, you know, we have these these things here in our system um, that we just assume, you know, apply to everyone. You know, if you're this age or this grade. And what happened was um, when students come and they haven't been to school, um, they have gaps and they're beginning English learners, it definitely is to their advantage to put them at the lowest grade possible so that they have time, you know, and when I say time, I don't mean extra time, I mean just the four years that, you know, every other student would get. Um, but what happens is that means at the, the end of their high school career, they're older than the traditional age of 18, which was the, the the point of contention and controversy, which it ultimately led those girls. One sister was able to be enrolled. Um, we had to get an affidavit of birth. Um, another just cultural competency nuance is that many refugees arrive with the birthday January 1st. And so if you um, know someone that happens to be a refugee and that's their birthday, chances are it's really not. It's just that the calendars don't convert directly. And so um, they put that down. So once we were able to do a verification of one of the girls of her actual birthday not being January 1st, we were able to get her in. But unfortunately, um, because her sister was over 18, even though she was just transferring um, from, you know, one school to another and never had the opportunity to finish, her enrollment was denied. When she went to, came to Modesto City Schools, 
she wasn't even able to be in high school anymore? Right. She was offered um, access to adult education, but uh, wasn't able to be in, um, physically enrolled in the Language Institute. Did that come as a big surprise? We were completely, completely shocked, but I wasn't completely surprised at the same time. And the reason I say that is all of the... Um, all of these tools of equity that we've kind of put in place um, in order to create opportunity for students had never been written down in policy. And so what had happened is over the years, I mean, oh, I sent so many emails and had so many meetings saying, you know, we really need to put this down in writing to make sure that it, it's part of the legacy of the Language Institute. And with it not being in writing, we knew that we were definitely at the whim of a, a new administrator because if things are left up to interpretation, then whoever is the administrator in charge in that particular time is, might see things differently. And in this case, that's what had happened is we had lost um, our administrator of the past five years. He had actually been promoted up to the district level. We got a new administrator in that didn't really have the same frame of reference as to how and why we did things. and so. That, why that decision was made. I definitely can say that we did our due diligence to try to prevent an issue like that from happening. In fact, that, that is the exact question that I asked when I had the privilege of being with uh, Secretary John King in Washington, D.C., was how do you address age and access and opportunity with students who arrive as teenagers? And um, I was thrilled when I heard my colleagues from across the country tell me about a Title III policy that actually in black and white states that that demographic of students have access to public education up until the age of 21, as long as, you know, attendance, grades, and behavior are appropriate. And so I just kind of, I got in that airplane and I flew home and thought, wow, you know, I, I found it. They just didn't know. And so now that I'm going to give them this policy, it's going to lay cover for us to put into writing what we know needs to be done. And, um, the resistance that I faced in implementing um, the policy that I found in Washington, D.C. was a real eye-opener to me that we were grinding against more than just the unknown. There was actually some active resistance to us uh, fighting for these students and for um, equitable pathways, which ultimately led to the things we were um, fighting for being taken away. What was it in the Modesto City Schools policy or the Davis High School policy that was written that didn't allow the student who was 18 to continue? Are we talking about the same problematic policy? What we were asking for was a special English learner policy to be adopted, um, identifying Title III uh, in order to give them you know, the option. Um, and I should, I should also say um, very few students needed to stay past age 18. And um, we would always make it about the, the student's choice. For example, it wasn't that we didn't tell them that adult ed existed or we didn't tell them, you know, that, that there were other options in the community, but we just felt like giving these families the choices to be empowered uh, to make decisions for their child's best interest, just like, you know, everyone else in the community does is something um, that, that they should have the right to do. So the policy changes, to be honest, that were actually adopted about two years ago, we were in the room when they were passed. And although they were not exactly what we would have written, we felt okay with them. We felt like what was written was fair. We felt like we could work with it. And we felt like we could move forward to hopefully bring some awareness to maybe uh, fine tune the needs of our students. It was the following August when we returned that what was happening was the Board of Education interpreted a sentence. So this, this, what I'm about to say wasn't actually physically written on the document, but this was the interpretation. And the interpretation was that the goal of the district is to get a diploma in a student's hands as you know, quickly as possible. So if a student could mathematically graduate then they had to do so. They could not get the additional time that we had used before to promote literacy. And so what that meant was we were gonna be forcing students at the beginning level of English into mainstream courses in order 
to, um, to graduate. And we weren't comfortable with that because, again, our philosophy was that diploma should represent something to our community in terms of the students' abilities. And so it was really hard to lobby and to, and to advocate and to try to challenge the way that that policy was being applied, considering, again, it was just an interpretation and it wasn't in black and white. And it led to, for example, um, we had a girl who could mathematically graduate because she brought transcripts from Afghanistan. Again, she was in the beginning phases of learning English. So had we um, done past practice, we would have said, you know, let's focus on like intensive language acquisition this year. And then you can come back one more year to take the graduation requirements that you need. Well, because that option was taken away from us, she was placed in a mainstream uh, grade level government economics class and her teacher came to me and he was beside himself because she was such a sweet girl, came to class every day, tried so hard, but he had um, asked students to write down some terminology, some definitions out of the glossary and the textbook and the, the paper he brought to me. She had done all of her work, but she had written every uh, definition in Spanish because she was still mastering the Roman alphabet, and so she couldn't differentiate the difference between English and Spanish. And so it put that teacher in such a no-win situation. Does he fail her in order to get to buy her the extra time, or does he give her a grade based on her effort and her participation? Um, and again, that's just one example. There were many classes and many students who had situations like that, but what I can tell you is, that young lady that I just told that story about actually crossed the stage and graduated in May, um, which of course we celebrated because, you know, obviously that diploma is going to be, you know, a, a, a wonderful opportunity for her future. But at the same time, we were a little bit uh, saddened by because that the, the meaning of that diploma in full literacy wasn't the tradition that we had celebrated in the past. There were some things that were going very well in the program, and there were some things that ended up making you want to move on and start the business that you have now. Do you want to kind of flesh those out for us? Basically, I just felt um, so compelled to continue to advocate for this demographic. The changes that were made uh, to the program um, we're not going to be, we're not going to allow me to fulfill my professional purpose and, you know, in terms of providing literacy and pathways for my students and not just the, um, the personal commitment that I made to myself as an educator, but also the promise that I'd made to the community that I'd spent the last decade um, empowering and advocating on behalf of. I definitely have deep roots in the immigrant and refugee and asylum seeking communities around here. And I felt that um, staying would uh, not allow me to um, uphold my promise to them, which is to continue to, to make this community um, not just more welcoming, but um, a place where they see them as an asset and want to build uh, different um, pathways, not only within school, but even within the community and um, within business to let them reach their full potential. So what I hope to do is, um, of course, like I mentioned, my specific expertise would be to build similar programs in, in other communities who um, want to to better serve their newcomers. But also I think the, the mindset that goes into um, teaching in general, but especially um, when there is a challenge that the educator doesn't anticipate. For example, when I got my degree in history and social science, I certainly never imagined one day I would be teaching the alphabet. Um, you know, that's just not something that a, someone trained to be a high school teacher um, knows to do. But the circumstances uh, forced me to gain that skill set. And when I think back on, you know, like that is a huge challenge. You know, what was it about me and my colleagues? who had been trained to be high school educators, yet we were able to learn and, and, and really dive into the needs of our students that were nothing that we had been, you know, technically trained to do. And it was just our, our sheer belief in these students' potential. You can imagine it'd be really easy if you have a young lady 
enroll from Pakistan who's 17 and not only is she um, illiterate in her primary language, never been to school in her entire life, but didn't know how to pick up a pencil. Actually, went, um, when she was enrolling and had to like hover over and um, you know put the pencil in her hand and have her sign an X on her enrollment papers. You know, it'd be really easy to pigeonhole a student that comes in um, with such a disconnect of grade level skills of what we would assume to be age appropriate. But we, uh, my, not just myself, but all my colleagues and I just had unwavering belief in if we gave these students what they needed, where they were at, that they could accomplish greatness. And time and time again, they proved us right. Not right away. I mean, sometimes it would take a year or two before we would see, you know, the fruits of our labor. But it was less about, you know, the the, the book or the curriculum or the, the master schedule, you know, all of these uh, things that we associate with education. But it was about, again, the culture and the, the, the spirit of um, the program, not just the teachers, because I would give credit to, um, you know, the, the students' peers as well. Absolutely, no matter what that student brought when they entered the classroom, that if they could commit to, you know, the time and attention to gain the literacy that they needed to be the self-sufficient and contributing members of Stanislaus County that we knew that they were capable of, um, and they, they rose to the occasion every time. So our, 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 that's something I hope to be able to train through professional development and through stories um, to, to give that mindset to teachers. Because that doesn't just apply to immigrants and refugees or English learners. That's a mindset that teachers can, can have that benefit every student, um, especially those sometimes that we deem to be the most challenging. And then, of course, I think that the same could be said for cultural competency and professional development and other aspects outside of education. Can you sort of describe that a little bit more? Yeah, I think um, when it comes to the mindset of the, the, the teachers, like I was saying, it's not only a belief in what they can do, but a, um, a suspension of judgment, because I think it's really easy for educators, again, to assume that if you're 15, you should know this, or if you're 18, you should know that. And I know I heard it amongst colleagues even before I taught in the Language Institute, you know, grumblings of frustration because they felt that their students weren't entering their classes um, with the right prerequisite knowledge. And, you know, it's easy to blame the teacher they had the year before, or maybe their home life. And in our case, we just I mean, I don't think it's ever fruitful to do that, to, to, to blame, um, you know, whatever circumstance brings that student into your class with the deficiencies they have. In our case, you know, what, what would be the point of, you know, getting angry at, you know, a teacher from another country, or you certainly can't begrudge a student who hasn't gone to school because they're in a refugee camp. So we didn't waste any time on even considering the factors that brought these students into our classes with these deficiencies and poured all of our attention into not only giving them the skills, but also the confidence. I think that, um, you know, you know, believing in the student, but guiding them along the way. And I, I think it, not to, to be cheesy, but they can feel it like when you really think that they're capable, even when they, you know, they're frustrated with themselves because they're failing again and again. If you believe in them and you continue to help them, um, you know, and I say this not just based on what I observed, but also, you know, feedback. I'm still in touch with them many, many of our graduates and they say, you know, I could just feel you guys believed in us and I knew I could I knew I could make a mistake and not be judged and I knew that there were people there to pick up my spirits if I got frustrated. And so I think that that was kind of the the magic ingredient which led to the characteristics of the students that I described before of, you know, they were very attentive, very diligent. I mean, not perfect. They're, they are teenagers. I don't want you to think that <laughs> our classrooms were were free of, of challenges and conflict because you can imagine, especially when you're bringing all these cultures in, that there's going to be clashes. So I don't want to sell up like, you know, every student came in and was able to just put, you know, nose to the grindstone and get to work right away. But again, the culture that we built was within, you know, a few months, they realized that, oh, wow, you know, around here, people take school serious, and around here, students understand that learning English is more just, 
is more than just being able to verbally communicate, but literacy means reading and writing. And literacy is the, the key that opens the door to the American dream. That's something that, that the students were, I guess, for lack of a better word, indoctrinated with when they stepped into a language institute classroom. Mm-hmm. I do think it benefited them and it, cre- it brought all those positive characteristics out of each other. There's something about what you just said that just opens up my sense of possibility. Yeah. I don't know if I'm clear on what changes were made to the program. So now we're having a totally different experience because learning is remote. But what changes were made? Well, um, a few things happened. Originally, it was just the interpretation that I shared earlier that that forced students to, to graduate without the benefit of that extra year by choice for literacy. Um, and when I say extra year, um, t- typically, as people will refer to that as a fifth year, um, we actually shied away from that terminology because we think it insinuates that they got actually five years of high school when in reality we were using it for just the 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 fourth year for example we had a girl from syria who arrived and um based on her age they made her a sophomore but she never uh, was she didn't attend school when she was in a refugee camp in jordan so when she used the fifth year you know she started off as a 10th grader and then she was 11 12th and then we referred to that extra year as the super senior year instead of the fifth year just so people didn't think she actually got five years of high school so when that was taken away by interpretation of course that was devastating But then we just kind of learned over the course of last year of even more changes that were being made. Um, For example, now the specialized class at ELD classes um, designed for language acquisition, students are only allowed access to them for up to 12 months. That's concerning on a variety of, of fronts. First, you know, obviously it takes, data says that it takes up to seven years to fully master a new language. So for us to expect students with all the factors that I've described to come in in 12 months and, and, you know, be ready to transition into grade level coursework is pretty steep hill to climb. That being said, the students who would at least have the ability to get into that specialized coursework up to 12 months would not be provided content specific language acquisition courses that were traditionally part of the program. So, for example, my class that was uh, taught social science, the foundations of social science, ELD geography, no longer exists. So all of these students um, are mainstreamed at grade level for math and science and everything else. So uh, that's going to be something that the students are going to kind of discover over time. They were not consulted. There was no opportunity for um, parent or student or community input on the changes that were made. So I'll be interested to see if the students or the the parents realize and start to speak up and ask. Not necessarily, I mean, the, the answer isn't to return to exactly what we were doing before. We were always the first to admit that we were open to, you know, retooling and reflecting and changing. But just the the wraparound supports in the classroom and outside of the classroom that we provide definitely aren't being provided under this new model. So I expect the community will probably be disappointed when they figure that out. What I'm really concerned about in terms of the 12-month cap is the fact that so many of our students that um, arrive from Mexico uh, tend to go back and forth. So for example, we had a lot of students who maybe spent, you know, first and second grade in uh, uh, elementary school in the United States, went back to Mexico, and then are returning as teenagers. Well, according to you know the new rules, they've already had their 12 months access of U.S. schools back in elementary school, so they would be fully mainstreamed. And students like that that slip through the cracks is just something that we would never have allowed under our watch before. Um, and it, I worry because you know they they don't know what they don't know, so they don't know that had they arrived you know three years earlier, they would have been placed into this intensive you know empowerment. Um, newcomer program that would have turned out different. Um, And so those are the, the, you know, the voiceless casualties of this. Uh, We might not ever be able to quantify because they won't know that they weren't provided with what they needed uh, to be literate and contributing members of the community. 
What is the reason given? There weren't a lot of reasons provided because again, there wasn't a lot of open dialogue between um, the school district and the parents. Um, I do know there was um, an audit done by the state in the spring of last year, and um, it was evident that some of the findings that they had, they never, they never spoke to myself or the leaders of the program to ask questions regarding um, some of their findings. The district eventually ended up using their findings as their justification for some of the changes they made. So for example, I remember in the findings, they criticized us for having a student who his US school entry date was, I can't, I believe 2009 or 2006. So if you were to go by that one data point, you would think that he himself was a long-term English learner and that he'd been in the schools since you know elementary school. So we're hypocrites because we haven't accelerated him grade level. Well, the reality was he's one of the students I described in my story before where, yes, he did enroll in U.S. schools in 2006, but then he went back to Mexico. Um, he came back to the United States for a year or two in junior high, went back to Mexico, and had returned back to us. Not only was he a beginning English learner, but he had some medical barriers that caused cognitive delays. Um, and there was even documentation from the doctor that it was, the school was going to be difficult for him. So we definitely had created a customized class schedule for him based on our communication with his guardians, the evidence we had from the doctors, our enrollment assessments. I can I rest assured we were doing right by that student. And then according to the state, which again, all they knew about him was that his U.S. school enrollment date was 2006. Um, we were criticized. So it was kind of a perfect storm of, you know, a way the district could make these changes without gaining input and use that audit kind of as a, as a cover, as a shield. We had actually created an advocacy group and we had used not just the teachers, but community members, faith leaders, the refugee agencies, people in the community who've been here for generations that rep either represented those students' cultures and faiths, or for example, our Southeast Asian community who were able to speak to the refugee experience and what they needed. We came together and formed a community organization to advocate. And we did it with written resolutions. We had meetings with board members tried sending emails and communicating needs, inviting the, the decision makers into the classroom and into our community events, because we really felt like we were the first to admit some of the things we asked for were so outside of the box that they probably opened our emails and thought, are they insane? But then when you come and you get to see the students in action and you get to meet the family and you get the context behind the ask, we thought it would you know bridge that gap of understanding. But unfortunately, most of the decision makers didn't take us up on the offer to get to know our needs. So fast forward to spring of 2018, and we told our students it's time that we go take your stories to the public comment section of the Board of Education meetings. If, you know, basically, if they're not going to come to us, then we need to go to them. And we told them that they needed to make their comments um, in the, their own personal narrative, that if you go to a board meeting and you get 20 kids going up and making the same comment, then that gets frustrating because it's considered a waste of time. So if you tell your story and why you are making this ask, you, you A, you can guarantee you're not going to be redundant, but B, hopefully give them, you know, the context to hear why you need that. Well, unfortunately, I mean, and they did an amazing job. I don't know if there is really a moment in my career as an educator, I was more proud than I was the night, the nights uh, at board meetings where these students were in front of, you know, people in a microphone and intimidating, uh, telling their stories and advocating for themselves. And the way that that landed to some of the board members was they were being attacked. They took it very personal. They felt that it, they were being accused of, in fact, one um, put in a, a public social media post that um, we had accused him of racism. And I give you my word, um, the, that word was never spoken. And maybe, you know, he felt that, that we were insinuating that, even though we never said it. But it was just really sad. It was a sad chapter in our history because, to me, obviously, 
I, you know, want my students to go off and live happy, productive lives, whether that, you know, includes college or, you know, any other trade school. Uh, but really, our true motivation for giving these kids the literacy and the confidence they need to be out in the world is to participate in democracy. And so, you know, to see kids doing that, grabbing that mic, speaking up, advocating on their behalf, you know, doing what we, we teach students in, in school should do, right? If you have a problem, be part of the solution. Don't sit around and complain about people. You know, don't, you know, feel sorry for yourself. Participate in democracy, be part of the solution. And they did that. And unfortunately, it caused uh, an unravel um, from the top that led to the, the changes that the program is now facing today. This is Leah Hassett interviewing Lindsay Bird on KCBP Radio 95.5 FM. Our show is Women of the Valley. So now you have your own business. And if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners what that business is and just some of the projects that you're presently working on. It's a brand new business. I was official as of, I believe, mid-July. Obviously, uh, when I made the decision to leave public education and to take this leap, I had no idea a global pandemic was about to fall upon us. So um, I definitely am not extremely busy yet. But what I hope to do is, you know, get into schools, do the equity-based professional development mindset training that all teachers need, get behind closed doors with administrators to analyze policy and to see if some of the barriers we faced could be addressed proactively before a student misses out on opportunity. It would be wonderful to to advise them to prevent this from happening and to create a master schedule and course offering that provides the empowerment and acceleration that we once provided in the Language Institute and tailor it to their specific demographic and community needs. So in terms of education, that's what I hope to offer. Of course, I would love to uh, do cultural competency work um, with staffs of businesses and nonprofits to make sure that I can help them identify any gaps that might be preventing them from fully serving their customers and clients to the best of their ability, you know, whether that is in, you know, customer service or even even in making a, a larger profit. I feel like the more the leaders in the, the business and nonprofit and even government sector of our county know about the people, the diverse needs of the people in the community, they can tailor their, uh, you know, their services or their product to meet their needs. And again, I um, will always be an advocate in my heart. And so it would be, you know, my honor to continue not only my personal advocacy to make sure that no barriers are placed on students within the system, but also explore other ways that I can take this knowledge that I gained getting to know these families throughout the years and help other institutions outside of education look at policy and make sure that it's written in a way that truly, truly considers the needs of the people that are living within our region. And, you know, I would also love to help other advocates hone their skills. I spent a lot of time this week helping people in the community navigate the system and giving them information regarding the policy that they could use to justify their ask or connecting them with advocates within the community. So kind of a networker of advocacy um, is definitely uh, a part of my business. Whether I get paid for it or not, I just want to continue to be that that conduit of of information to make sure that the the people who have often gone unheard and unseen get that spotlight on them. Diversity, equity, inclusion consultant is the technical term for it. But and, you know, however that applies to whatever institution, I would figure out a way. But I definitely think that there is part of the DEI lens that I offer that might be unique in terms of the the deep relationships that I formed within the community, specifically the immigrant community around here. So it would absolutely be my pleasure to make sure that they're they're just welcomed and, and integrated. And I can't wait for us 
to value what they bring to our city, whether that be immediately or 10 years down the road. With my students, for example, um, I know that they're very family oriented and whether they go off to become a nurse or a doctor, they're gonna stay local. They're gonna give back to the city that gave them so much when they first arrived. And so I really wanna make sure that we lay the groundwork for those that quality of citizen to not just live here, um, but to get access to what they need to make the city a better place for everybody. Do you have any directions to those who want to participate? Yeah. Um, well, if you're interested in like directly um, helping the communities I've described, I would encourage listeners to reach out to World Relief. IRC or El Concilio. Those are the big um, community organizations where uh, volunteers are welcome and they have options uh, for service. If um, listeners are interested in impacting, you know, policy and culture, then of course um, they can find the services for my business at lindsaybirdconsulting.com and hopefully connect me with um, people um, that have, you know, the authority to help influence the culture that we could all benefit from. Um, and other than that, I would just really um, encourage everyone, you know, to do what my students did and to be active participants in democracy. Lindsay, I'm just really glad that you could talk with us today. Oh, thank, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity because I, I there's nothing I enjoy more than to uh, express my love and gratitude toward these students and families who've made me the, the educator and the advocate I am today. So I appreciate the platform and the opportunity. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Alrighty, thank you. You've been listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio at 95.5 FM and streaming online at kcbpradio.org. This has been Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. Be sure to catch us next time on Women of the Valley. Thanks for listening. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch.